But if I can go even deeper, I would tell you it's all the differences and similarities that are brought to the table in the uniqueness that you have. That's the diversity. I don't think we talk about diversity as being the uniqueness of individuals, but truly that's what it is. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in the weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. Hey leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. Today, I'm excited to welcome Jorge Quesada to our show. This is gonna be really interesting for me because I have things to learn from Jorge. So Jorge, first of all, thank you. Sure. You're an expert in your space. This is gonna be fun. Would you please just do a little introduction of yourself and your work before we get to work schooling me? No, I, I appreciate that. Thank you, Ledge. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for the work that you're doing. And in a lot of ways, in that introduction, thank you for the title of expert. I would tell you that in this work, I see myself as a learner, a lifelong learner. And there's a reason for that, right? I, I think this is not about me. This is about trying to create an environment of inclusion for the people here at Granite and even in the construction industry. And in order for me to do that, I have to always put myself in that seat of always learning not only learning about the environment that I step into, the people that I meet, or the things that we're trying to accomplish. So I appreciate the expert side of it. And I hope I can give you some of that. And I hope some of the leaders that are on the call, I hope you can get something out of it. But as you mentioned, Jorge Quesada, originally from San Salvadores, Central America. And I guess I wanted to lead that with that today, because I think I'm really with Hispanic Heritage Month and the way it's being celebrated I've been really proud of where I'm from and in, in a lot of circles, someone that was born in San Salvador, Salvador shouldn't be a chief diversity officer for a construction company in the United States, right? That's a framing that sometimes people create, but here I am. I've been doing this work, I think some would argue all my life because I have lived experiences as a Latino, but I, I worked at Allstate from 1986 to like about, oh shoot, 2001 or so. And in that time, it was the last five years that I spent time honing my craft. But prior to that, I was in the business side of it, started in HR, claims, sales, Hispanic marketing, product operations, actuarial sciences, you name it, and, and even project management. And then I took a turn where everyone was wondering, like, what was I doing in diversity, equity, and inclusion? At that time, there was a gentleman, our chief diversity officer, Mike Escobar, who was looking for someone who had business background can talk about diversity and inclusion at the time. And my name kept popping up. And then when I got into the practice, I realized I knew nothing about diversity and inclusion, yet alone equity and inclusion, yet alone equity and inclusion and belonging, yet alone equity, inclusion, belonging, and justice, as now we've labeled a whole bunch of different things underneath that umbrella. And so I went deep into learning Ted Childs at IBM, Jennifer Brown from Jennifer Brown Consulting, Judith Katz from the Khalil Jameson group, you name it, Andres Tapia at that time, he was at Hewitt and Associates. And then and now he's with Corn Ferry. And I continue, I think of him as a mentor, Dr. Roosevelt Thomas, who wrote some amazing literature around the business side of DEI, but yet also was very passionate about the diversity side of it things. And so I went deep and I gave myself because I thought, you know what, this is coming out pretty well. I'm, I'm starting to learn, pick up some stuff. I'm teaching people. I became a practitioner and then Kraft Foods came knocking at the door and it was cool because they offered me a position as chief diversity officer there to 
take over for Jim Norman, someone who I had stolen so many ideas from, right? I met him and I told him, I said, listen, I've been stealing shamelessly from you. And then we had a great conversation, but I went there. Then I, I left Kraft Foods and went to Northwestern Mutual in which I met an amazing group of people, someone that Mark Richards and Ron Adams, specifically Ron Adams, he and I started developing a way to think about this work a little bit different, right? We wanted to take the work from intention to impact. We wanted to talk about more about the inclusion side of things. And Kraft Granite came knocking from and asking, hey, we want to prop up a diversity, equity, and inclusion practice here at Granite. Would you be interested? And it was cool because it was a homecoming for me. I'm, I went, came back to California. I'm in the northern part of California and really excited to be back. But that's a real quick kind of like history of where I was born and where the work took me. And I love that journey of learning and you describe it that way. The first thing I think of is like when I look at the DE&I article, like I try to keep up with the press or, you know, like this issue is important. Like, yeah, I want to have that in my own companies. And it's like, there's all kinds of documentation about this is better for your profit. It's better for all kinds of things. And yet, if I'm honest, like it's a scary topic. I'm the stereotypical, like middle-aged white guy in a company. I don't even know how to define diversity, equity, inclusion, I could take a stab at it. I'm not a moron, but like, these are the types of things that rattle around in my brain. And it must be so important for you to just roll back on a regular basis and define from the beginning, help people understand how to even have this construct that it's so important, but it isn't just well-defined at all. Yeah. You, I, and I think it's not well-defined in the sense that um, everyone has their own interpretation of it. It would be like going to an art gallery and have people having them stand in front of an art piece. When the artist painted it, created it, they had their own idea of what the piece represented. Sometimes you go up to an art piece and you see the name of the art piece and you go, how in the heck did they get that, that name of this art piece from what I'm seeing? But sometimes it's perspective. Sometimes the closer you get to an art piece, you see what the artist is trying to do. Sometimes when you pull back, you see what the artist is trying to do. And I think the same thing happens with diversity, equity, and inclusion. But let me give you some, the reason why I bring up Andres Tapia. Andres Tapia, again, he was at Hewitt and Associates at the time, the chief diversity officer there. And he coined a phrase and even patented it that says that diversity is the mix and inclusion is making that mix work. So you can imagine coming to Granite when we're talking about asphalt mixes and stuff, the pun is intended, right? But it takes a lot of different chemicals, aggregates, difference, that difference um, to bring it together and making it work. That's the inclusion side of it. But if I can go even deeper, I would tell you it's all the differences and similarities that are brought to the table in the uniqueness that you have. That's the diversity. I don't think we talk about diversity as being the uniqueness of individuals, but truly that's what it is. Each of us are made up of our own special uniqueness. And in the work itself, is trying to unleash that uniqueness to create greater employee engagement. If you believe the data that Gallup gives us year over year, right? And I'm going to keep it very high level. Only 30% of any company are the people are engaged. That means that 70% of the people either are mailing it in or just giving us mediocre production, 
right? If we're going to use that term or they're engaged, only 70, 70% of the people like are the, engaged. that whole quiet quitting or, you know, yeah, it can, yeah, exactly. I'm exactly. Just, I'm just check out. I get my check. I don't care. I don't feel connected. Yeah. To yeah. You only pay me to do what's on the job description. That's all I'm going to do. Yeah. Right? And which I'm like strikes fear into everybody who like manages a payroll of any sort. Cause just like, that's horrible. <laughs> it, it is. And if you think about it, let's do some silly math, right? Let's do some silly math. If you have a team of 10 people, right? You are paying them. When you said payroll, this is why I want to go there. You are paying them the salary of 10 full-time employees, FTEs. But if that data is true, only 30% of that team of 10 are engaged. And then you got to ask yourself, are you getting the value? And I will tell you that it's to me, when we think about diversity, equity, inclusion, it starts with leadership. It starts with how are we as leaders? And this is why it's great that we're talking to leaders today, taking the time to evaluate how inclusive are you to the people on your team? Now, one of the things that you could do is you could say, okay, why is it my team not producing, only giving me 2X when in actuality, I want to challenge them to give me 10X. They're not engaged. And why aren't they engaged? Have you gotten to know them? Do you know who they are? Do you know what their uniqueness is? And sometimes we lose sight of the fact that by asking those questions, we're asking, how diverse is your team? If all of them are the same, if all of them think the same and they go into a room, don't be shocked if when you say, hey, we, want to, we need to do something new. And if all of them are used to doing something a certain way with no ideas that are different, then you have to find a way to tap into what's unique about them that can allow that uniqueness to come out. And that's, I think, the work that we do around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, inclusion is the act. And the way we've been talking about it lately, and, and we've also been trying to follow your lead here, and we also have a podcast. And one of the things that in Construction DEI Talks, our podcast that we have, we talk about is being inclusive is about being kind, being good, being better. How do we get people to be better with one another? How do we get to be better together? How do we do the things that are necessary for us to create environments from a safety perspective, to look out for each other at a job site, but more importantly, from a psychological safety, can I detect when something is not right with you, Ledge? And then be able to have the courage to ask you, hey, everything good? And if you come back to me and say, thank you for sharing, thank you for asking me, because no, things aren't good. I may have prevented a thought in your head. I may have prevented an action that you may take. I may have prevented you from doing something. Tomorrow, your family is going to be sad. We at the company are going to be sad. And I'm talking about one of the highest things that we think about in the construction industry. And it's the psychological, the safety, the mental health, and the suicide rate that we have in our industry. And so it's important for us to be thinking about DEI not in what we're told from external, like you were talking, right? Oh, there's but plenty of external about that. There's a lot of external noise, right? Around how you should think about it, what you should do, terminology that's used. You brought this to like the most visceral of, hey, we're talking about lives. This is literally about lives, right? Sometimes a woman will come to the workplace five minutes late. And then we have processes in place sometimes that will hold her accountable for being late, dock her pay, and sometimes even take action to terminate employment. If you never checked with her to find out why she's been late, you may find out 
that she just had a teacher conference and their child is in the autism spectrum and it's difficult for her to get her kids ready, if, especially if she's a single mom or if she's married, the same thing at home. And then you switch it around and you realize that men also are thinking about taking their kids to school and they want to play a part. So this whole conversation is about getting to know people, getting to be better with people. I've, I've said in, the, in, in certain circles, right, I've said, you know what, based on how I was brought up, I would want people to treat each other the way we hold hands, sing songs and give praise on Sundays. I want them to do that Monday through Saturday. I've said that to people because we get taught how to be good, how to be kind, how to be better, how to be compassionate. It's just that we never associate that with representation, civil rights, numbers, right? Everyone wants to talk about that, but they don't really talk about the very things that the actions that require us to be good with one another. And it's so interesting to take that, like when I think about it from a leadership standpoint, we can talk about strategy and vision and mission and values and like all those really important things that you do to just make sure are we aligned and to have this be part of it. And then also know that from those kind of really ethereal, is that the right word? Ethereal. It sounds good. It, it sounded really <laughs> good, by the way. I'm just ethereal, more caffeine, Nudge. Yeah, there you uh, go. Yeah. Ethereal concepts down to like, we need actual programs. We have to execute something. There's a training involved. There's some kind of documentation or, and that's when it like becomes that sort of, oh dear God, we have to sit through another diversity seminar, or we have to be trained on how not to harass someone, or it's just, it loses so much of that, the really community led sort of, we feel good about and support each other. How do you do that the right way? So it's not this like hokey eye roll and go back to what I was doing before. Yeah, I think I, I like the way you position that because I think there's so much truth to that. There's so much truth the way people have gone to this type of training and first of all, feel like they just got hit by a two by four or they've gone to this training and it's so just absolutely just downward type of training where you're teaching people, like telling them what to do. And as human beings, right, even as adults, that's the last thing we want is to be told what to do, especially when we think we're living in the lives of adults. But the reality is this, right? I think we have a situation where being kind, being good, and being better, I have to acknowledge that it's relative. I think people get up in the morning and they look in the mirror and they say, man, I look great. I'm dressing up until you show up to the office and you realize, whoa, you know, my great and my goodness is not the same thing. And the same thing is true when it comes to being kind. To some people, being kind is just nodding their head, right? In the morning, I was kind. I acknowledged them. And to some people, it's good morning. How are you doing? And to some people, it's good morning. How are you doing? Hey, I haven't talked to you in a while. How's your family doing? Or being curt that, that kind of way. So I share that with you because what you want to do is you literally want to you want to put position that so that people can understand the same thing holds true when it comes to, like you said, oh, we're going to go through another type of training, like, especially when harassment happens. The reality is harassment does happen. Some people think it's okay to treat people a certain way. And if you do too much of that and you continue to do it, then you have to say, no, you can no longer do that. And then you have to encode things into your policies and procedures that if someone acts out, this is the actions that you have to take. And then you have to educate people. And then if you have enough of that going on that you're doing, then all of a sudden, 
municipalities get involved, governments get involved, and they start putting legislation that gets involved that you should not do this kinds of stuff. And so as long as we have people not really centering on what it's like to be kind, good, and better, and not treat people with disrespect and treat people and not value who they are, we're going to continue having this stuff. And you got to talk about it. But I think there's a way of talking about it to enlighten people so that they can get it, as opposed to, you know, I'm old enough to know about Charlie Brown, Charlie Brown and Charles Schultz and, and Charlie Brown's teacher. I agree with you. Some of the conversation sounds like, right? And we can't afford to do that. We got to have real talk, like I hope we're having today. Yeah, it's like, you know, like we treat it like, because it it has a regulatory component, protected classes of people and ways you can act or whatever, it becomes not dissimilar to like people roll their eyes like it's the tax code. And I think that's problematic because anytime you have to institutionalize something at, at that critical level, people understand the point of that, but then it becomes like the conversation is no longer about kindness and betterness between people. It's essentially building up a wall of protection and, and for good purpose. So you can see things historically why we have that type yep. of well, and I'll tell you, and I'll tell you, and I, I like the the way you phrased it too, right? Because I think what re it reminds me of is getting a driver's license. I have to make sure, Ledge, that you know the laws, right? Because when you're on the left side of on the left side of me, and I come to an intersection, and it's your stop sign, but I can keep going, I have to know that you're going to stop. But here's the deal: even though we have all this knowledge, people still speed. People still drive through reds. People still drive through stop signs. And this is what I'm getting at. We're using this as a metaphor to talk about DEI, but we all go to the training. Once you hear it, you're being told, right? You like, this is how you can be inclusive. This is what diversity is. This is what, but yet it's our own filters that allow us to do different things around it. Just like I, I drive here in you know, California, we can go up to 65. I'm still a 63, 64. I'm on the right-hand lane. I have family members that drive on the left-hand lane, the speed, and they go 80, even though it's posted a certain speed limit. And then we justify things by saying, oh, I'm going to the speed of the conditions. And, and you're saying to yourself, wow, don't be, if you get a ticket, don't be saying, but I was driving on with conditions. I know, was going with traffic. Traffic, going with traffic. That's it. That's it. I was going with traffic. Yeah. And, and, and so I give you that because I think we all do that. We all learn. We sure, all which, learned which constructs do I want yeah. to stretch because that rule doesn't apply to me. And, and in which way, and I think good social contracts are designed to say, you know, like, yes, it's the law not to run that red light, but there's also just basically the social construct of we stop at red lights and because there's self-preservation that's built into, that's a good system, right? If we don't stop, we're very likely to get T-boned and die. So the question is then how do you construct meaningfully, maybe that's inclusion, right? So the, our social constructs at work, our systems gift everyone the opportunity for this kindness because we're just doing it well and it benefits everyone. And then you have this idea of nobody wants to feel penalized or less than or different than. What a difficult balance. Like designing people systems is the hardest. Thing. It, it really is. Because the other thing too, is like you think about the acquisition cost, talent acquisition cost, the money that you pay to attract talent. 
And if you're not retaining that talent, all you're doing is creating this cycle of bringing people in, having them leave, people coming in, people leave. And the ones that do stay, there's a cost. There's a cost, right? As a company, you could burn out those folks. And this is why I think the work is so important. And you got to open up the conversation beyond gender and ethnicity. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's interesting. I, I had this thought coming into our talk about this protected classes must be a weird thing for you all to deal with because you want to say, hey, I want to honor and and manage and think about all the differences between everybody. And some classes have been deemed protected by law and, and some haven't. And it must be challenging for you to, or how do you manage the challenge of balancing like everybody's different and, and special and has all these things to bring to the table, some of which are conceptually protected or legally protected and, and some of which are just not. And that alone sets this bar of like, I feel different because my difference isn't valued as much as somebody else's from a protection standpoint. Yeah, no. Um, so thank you for that. Because I would tell you that maybe it's, I'm a glass half full kind of guy anyway. And for me, I, I'm going to throw another buzzword. So from a growth mindset perspective, it would be very easy from a fixed mindset to say there are different systems in place or different processes in place around DEI for protected class, for others who are not protected, and then create different projects. But I would tell you that we at Granite practice what we say is inclusive diversity. We are inclusive of all the diversity that we have here today, tomorrow, and into the future. And if it sounds like an elevator pitch, it's because it is an elevator pitch. But the reason why it, it flows that way is because of this. Once you elevate your thinking to say diversity is for all, even in the word inclusion is the word us, right? In the middle of the word us, right? Once you think about that, then all of a sudden, what you've termed as protective classes from a compliance perspective is a subset of the bigger thing that we're doing. And if you're doing it, then throw in another buzzword, right? Then we were inclusive of the in intersectionality that exists in every one of us. And let me go here. So when you say protected class, you could be a white male, okay? And be protected because you have a handicap or you have a disability. So all of a sudden, you can't say, I don't like DEI. Well, first of all, you're in a protected class. You follow me? But now you're this white male who's disabled, but also in the military, who was in the military, right? Who potentially is in another class and race from a, a race perspective. You may present as white, but you may be 25% American Indian. So now all of a sudden, what you saw was a fist. And, that, and let's say the disability is not visible, but all you saw was a white male because that's the way the person presented. Your eyes will tell you that they're not in a protected class, but guess what? They are, right? Because of all the different nuances. The way we talk about inclusive diversity, that person was included from day one because of all the diversity that they were able to share with us. Some of it is self-identification, right? Some people come to work and never tell you they have a disability, especially if it's not something that's visible. Some people, you will never know that they're 25 plus American Indian. And you, you can't tell that unless they tell you, right? Some of those things. So I guess what I want to give your audience is this thing that says, listen, 
It's not what you look at. And Thoreau, I think, said that, that life is not what you look at, it's what you and by seeing is actually taking action to getting to know the person, right? Seeing takes like a next level action to say, I want to get to know who you are thing. And so I give you that because I think that is the nuance. And that's the way we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion here. We lead with that. So there's a lot of things that we do around from a compliance perspective because we are a government contractor. So we have to talk about representation by numbers, by project by different states, locations, and stuff like that. But we don't lead with that. We lead with creating an inclusive environment. And we lead with that because it's one of our values. Inclusion is one of our values. So this gets back to what we started out talking about. Like Our pursuit of engagement is to folks to live the core values that we have. And because inclusion is one of them, we have an expectation, a purpose, a why around inclusion. Have you seen in terms of improvements that organizations can make with this when it's it just feels like one of those biggest issues that you also want to ignore sometimes because it's just like overwhelming you know you just wish that it would go away not because you don't want to do good things but because the mandates and the pressures of leadership you're just like oh i i it's easy to back burner and go, I want to deal with that later. How do you build it into your daily structure? So this is a thing that we are, not a thing that we programize and stick on a PowerPoint on a every six month basis, or just keep kicking that can down the road because it's just, it's amorphous, right? It's, it's a huge concept of say, if you think about economic, political, and social things, this touches all of them from a and leadership standpoint. How do you even begin when you're just like, hey, I want to do this, or I want to think this way, but you're just stuck and there's so much to think about from a leadership standpoint? Yeah, I, I would tell you that my, like my research, my learning, and my continued learning, like right now I'm, I'm geeking out on neuroscience. And because if you have a brain, you're biased. And let's just put it out there. There are things that we decide to do because our brains, the all those cartoons with the good guy and the bad person, good person, bad person, go do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. That's our brain. I think it was a great way for people to really realize that our brain does that to us all the time. Our brain is set up to protect us from not only the saber toothed tigers that we shouldn't have pet, right? When we were back in the day kind of thing to walking into dark rooms, our brains, like they're predictors. It's like a big predictor machine. That's the way I talk about it. And so you go into something that's different to you, that's new to you. Your brain is going through all the your filing cabinets and finding a moment where you experience that. And if you've ever experienced a dark room, the first thing you start doing is hitting the wall, looking for the light switch, right? All of us do that. Or you start blinking real quick so you can get your eyes adjusted. Your brain found that in the filing cabinet. Now, if you've never done that, it's a new experience. And guess what happens? If it's so new, your brain will convince you not to go into that room. So if you ever have people who are like, I don't want to go on that roller coaster, it's not because the individual doesn't want to go on the roller coaster. The brain has convinced the person, hey, that's not for you. Go sit down. Let everyone else do it. Same thing happens with this work, right? And I think what I've learned over time is when you bolted on the things, when you bolt it onto things, it feels like it's another thing to do, 
But I'll tell you, and I'll just give you high level, right? Management by walking around. What was the intent of management by walking around? It was not to be the uh, micromanaging overlord that it turned into from time to time. It's, you know, like it was meant to, I believe, understand the context of essentially what is the white collar version of people who work on the front line. What is actually going on here in this giant collection of people that work here? And what can I learn from them? Of course, then it became the looking over shoulders and the tracking. And this is all these things, right? There's always the negative side, right? But when you... The intent was to get out there with the people. Get out there with the people. Find out what they're doing. Find out what their birthdays, how their families are doing. Situational leadership, right? Depending on what model you use, right? But I'll talk about Blanchard. You have a conversation with someone and you find out, do they have the knowledge and the skills to do the project they're about to do. And then you create a social contract with them to determine if you're going to be prescriptive, a coach, are you going to support them or are you going to delegate to them, depending on their skill set and their knowledge. It gave you feedback. Guess what? That was talking of getting to know the person for who they are. That's what we teach around diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? There's a lot of things that I think maybe in at the beginning, instead of seeing this as a leadership competency, we talked about it from a compliance perspective and why we needed more XYZ type of people in a company as opposed to creating a better leader. This is leadership competency 101 kind of thing. This is about getting to know your people where they're at. This is about finding their unique talents. This is trying to find out their superpower. This is to finding out instead of how do we do something versus who can do it. That's a concept, right, that, that I'm learning right now. There's a gentleman, last name, Stan, not Stanley. I'll give you the name, Benjamin Hardy. That's the guy's name, wrote 10X, along with Dan Sullivan. They also wrote a book that I've been listening to right now. Maybe that's why it just hit me. It's this notion of, we ask the question, how do, we, how do I do this? Diversity, equity, and inclusion challenges you to say, hey, wait a minute. Here's something that we want to do. Who do we have in the organization that can do it? That is a game changer because instead of feeling the pressure on how to do it, we just go find the people who can do it. You talk to them and you say, hey, we got an opportunity here. Are you interested? And because they're, they get excited about that type of work, they'll do work better for you than you telling someone what to do that's never done it before. That is what DEI is. But if we get into this thing of trying to feel like, do I have enough number of this people. And don't get me wrong, it's important if you're trying to create diversity of thought, if you're trying to create new ideas, having people that are different is good. But how you teach it, how you talk about it, how you execute it, it all lies with the premise of being better leaders. Yeah. And it it has to do also with, gosh, you just brought up all kinds of organization, organizational dynamics challenges, right? Because we're all trained to from our MBAs and what you draw the org chart and there's straight lines and there's sometimes there's dotted lines. And what if the who lives in a place that isn't supposed to work on that? Cause that's not in our silo of information. And then, so you have to deal with the interpersonal cross team dynamics, but the best qualified person to do this thing, it, it's very Jim Collins ish because it's, you know, sort of who first, then what, and you're saying it's who first, then how, and that's hard. And the more more humans you have working on a thing, the more channels of organization you need to have on communications and tooling and information flow. I mean, it's just like 
it's pervasive. It'll be the never ending challenge of we operate outside of the way we draw because it's so multi-dimensional that it doesn't fit in sticks and boxes. No, it doesn't. And, and I'll tell you, David Rock out of the Neuro Leadership Institute did something really brilliant about, and, and they've been working on this work for a while now around unconscious bias. And they took all the biases, like the, he identified like about 141 biases that exist. And he narrowed it down to five and he called it the seeds model, seeds, S-E-D-S. And he said that there's five buckets. There's similarity bias, there's expedience bias, there's experience bias, there's distance bias, and there's safety bias, okay? And the example, and again, you, you brought that into, gave me that insight. What you talked about, here's who can do this job at this company. We, we are in Phoenix, Arizona. Oh, the person is in Florida. E, let's not do it. That's distance bias, right? And what, how do you mitigate distance bias? You actually take the distance out of the equation, out of your conversation. So you say to yourself, okay, so what if the person was here in Phoenix? Would this person be given this assignment? And if the answer is yes, okay, so now let's go talk to the person, see if they can move to Phoenix. Or can this person do the job from Phoenix, from, from Florida, sorry, from Florida, right? Can this, is that person valuable enough for us to give them this work, for us to move the company forward. Again, I'm just giving you an example on a model that was created from a neuroscience perspective to talk about what prevents us from selecting the right person, like the Jim Collins type of thing, right? And what I'm getting at, based on what I'm reading, is sometimes we go to how do we do it and we allow the safety bias to get in the way of not bringing the person who can do it to actually execute for us and solve the problem that we have in our company. That's how all these things come together. So it's a decision-making construct, which brings it much more into the zone of, hey, this is how we've at least been taught over the last hundred years to make managerial organizational decisions. And it gives us a way to think about how to add that heuristic then in. Exactly. If you think about even if we keep going down this track, in order for someone to make a decision that the person in Florida, because of distance, couldn't be the person to do the job, they must have either they want to make a quick decision, which is experience bias, right? They're being quick about it, or their experience has told them, nah, it's not going to work. This distance thing doesn't work, right? So you got three of those dimensions. And then there's a, also an element of safety bias that we don't see. We see the negative before we can see the positive. So in financial services, right, life insurance is a big one. Why would I buy life insurance today and spend all this money here if I'm not going to be alive? You can't see five, 10 years from now. So there's a safety bias that you create that you make a decision based on the negative, not on the positive. The same thing holds true. It's, you know what? I don't see any value in, in paying for this person to move. I don't see this, you know, it costs too much to do this job across country like this. No, let's not do it. When you have all those four things playing out, it's no reason why sometimes we don't get the efficiencies that we look for in change management because very quickly our biases come into place. And sometimes the reason why we don't talk about it this way, and this is what I learned with the folks at Neuro Leadership Institute, is because bias, just like DEI, when you say we have biases, you're like, I don't have biases. And you're like, yeah, we do. There's right. Reason. And it's, it allows you to almost poke fun at the insanity of then saying, I don't see color or Correct. Say, Bingo. I, don't see, 
I don't yes. see distance. I don't see yes. that I have experience. I mean, it becomes like it's the exercise of the absurd to recalculate those, Correct. those dimensions and the things that people go, that's dumb. Of course I see that. You know, Ledge, they say, right, that the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? And I think there was a time when people were in this mode of let's not talk about it. Let's not acknowledge race. Everyone is equal, even though we know that that person is black, this person is Hispanic, Latino, this person is Asian. I don't see color or I don't see gender. All I see is people. And you're like, I understand why you're minimizing. I understand why you're minim minimizing. But you can't be telling me that all these people and now you're arguing against trans rights and LGBT. You know, now you see the difference, right? And this is, I think, where we have to step back and have conversations because it's in the discussion that we take two points of view, and together we can create a truth. Right now, we're representing points of views as though there are truths. And, and when that happens, there's no way of finding that third solution. And that, that conversation, you read it on the seven habits of highly effective people, finding the third, creating the win, right? Th that was Stephen Covey. So even Stephen Covey was talking about DEI, when in his chapters on uh, uh, synergize is is one of his one of the habits, he talks about how diff in order for you to synergize, you have to see two points of view come together as one, right? You have to live in two paradoxes. You have to know that's the case. And you know, I'm not trying to be silly here, but I don't know if those folks would have sold that many books on situational leadership, seven habits, by saying this is a diversity, equity, and inclusion book. It, they were great leadership. They might get some grief these days. So yeah, yeah these days, yes. I think you're right to think of it as like a construct of leadership. Everybody can agree leadership's important. And, but we also say about leadership is it's the most written about, least understood concept in Correct. humankind. Everybody has an opinion, right? But my mm -hmm. opinion's always better than your opinion. <laughs> and, 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 I'll, and I'll tell you another author, now you got me all geeked up about the authors, uh, John C. Maxwell. When he talks about the importance of leadership, and this is like a kind of putting a bow on, on, on why this is so important to treat people the way they want to be treated. Leadership, the way he talks about it, first of all, he says leadership is influence. But the reason why you're able to influence in the way he writes about it is because he says that leadership begins when you realize that it's no longer about you. It's about the other people. And if you have a problem talking about DEI in the spirit of leadership, it's because you have the problem. Think about that. When you start thinking about other people, you have to get to know them. You have to get to know that someone's from San Salvador may not know about tacos, quesadillas, right? Or they may not know that stuff, or they may not know that Cinco de Mayo is some, a battle that was fought, not necessarily Mexican Independence Day, but you treat them as though they should know because they know Spanish. Right. That's the kind of stuff that. Yeah. Which becomes sillier and sillier as you get to know those things. But it's just if I could in the last few minutes we have what I, I keep circling in my head is this really is about the leadership and management of stretching comfort zones. And the very fact that I have to have a difficult conversation in order to address any of this makes it the thing that most people will find something else to keep themselves busy. Like we avoid difficult conversations and, and it doesn't, it doesn't only live in this zone, but it just, 
it feels like that's the thing that we often miss in, in leadership is that we want to not have conversations that make us feel uncomfortable. I think it started off for me in LinkedIn. LinkedIn had this meme that talked about getting out of your comfort zone and it had comfort zone. Then you go into the fear zone then you go into the learning zone. Then you go into the growth zone. So in order for you to grow, the premise behind that, that illustration was, is that you have to get out of your comfort zone. But the thing is, it's individuals don't put themselves in the comfort zone. You, I'm going back to the brain, right? Our brains tell us, hey, listen, I know you said you want to lose weight, but guess what, Ledge? It's going to hurt. Don't go, don't go work. Don't go work out. And that's why Atomic Habits is such a great book because it talks about the micro steps that you take in order to build a habit. But I'll tell you that instead of seeing that leaving the comfort zone is going to give you pain or you're going to go into fear, I think what we got to maybe trick our brains is like, you know what? I want to learn something. Like learning is getting out of your comfort zone. Learning, you know, what is the saying that the illiterate, Toppler said it, that the illiterate of the 21st century is not going to be the people that can, doesn't know how to read, write, or do arithmetic. It's the people that can't learn, unlearn, and relearn. This is really teaching us. It's like, what do I need to unlearn? And that's difficult for people, especially the older we get and the more crystallized we are in our thinking and in just a way of life. To unlearn certain things, to relearn is real difficult. But this is where we grow. This is how we grow individually. And this is how we grow as a society, as a country, right? As human beings is by us learning new things. And it calls for disruption. It calls for getting out of your comfort zone. And it just challenges you that learning, learning is about growing. But yeah, I would agree with you on that. Before we go, I always like to ask my guests, you are Jorge Sada. You have your particular job. You have your particular background, the way you got here, you have a unique leadership perspective and it governs and, and has the idea of like, what's on your radar? What can you see over the next few years that should be on every leader's radar that maybe they just right now don't have it. They don't see it. The blip isn't there and they don't know what to do with it. What is your unique guidance from that collection of things that's you and only you? Wow, that's a great question. Let me, let me think about this in the sense of I'm looking up because that's where I look to get answers, that's right? That's where the ideas live. Yeah, the that's up there. Right. So, I would, <laughs> so I will tell you, there's a company by the name of Innovisor that is doing some amazing work around network uh, mapping. And network mapping is not something that's new, but I'll tell you what it's taught me is that sometimes we take change initiatives and think, oh my God, we we have a company of 10,000 employees. How are we going to get 10,000 employees going in the same direction, right? What you learn is through network mapping that in order to make change happen, if you want to achieve 90% results, you identify the 3% who are the influencers in your company. And then change management can happen that way. And doing that type of exercise gives you that insight. I think we're going to do more of that. I think companies are already doing it. But I think when you ask me that question brought to broadly think about it, we're going to do that. That will live in DEI as well. I think we're going to move beyond empathy to compassion, and that's going to be a bigger conversation. It's a big step in a sense. I mean, it's not, you know, if pity is, I don't like, I dismiss you as sympathy is, oh, I feel And empathy is about like, I'm feeling like I'm personally feeling about it. Compassion. And, and maybe this is, yeah, from Dalai Lama, 
compassion is about not only feeling what you're going through, but I'm here to help you. And this is the kind of stuff that's resonating for me, especially on the psychological safety work that's being done and discussed, and especially around uh, mental health and suicide. Feeling hurt, like you're feeling hurt, may not be enough. It's actually almost preventing you from taking action. So I see that as number two. And then the work I think that we're going to do individually to impact the people around us and amongst us. And what I mean by that, can we wake up every morning to live an amazing life? Can we, in the moments where we reflect and meditate, can we learn to do those kinds of, to love, like with a certain passion that allows us to help people? And then can we, when we shine, can we show people that to nudge them, to show them that the impossible is possible? Right now, it feels as though I think we're waiting for groups to do this, but change doesn't happen at the group company level. Change happens when an individual creates the change at their location, at their desk, with their team. I, I think sometimes change management programs or transformational programs don't move along because 3% of the population, we haven't talked to the right 3% to help us. We haven't challenged people to individually take really hold of it. And, and so that's why I'm saying it's like if once we can engage people in a way that they wake up and they're like, you know what, today is going to be an amazing day over at Granite Construction. Today, when I talk to Ledge, it's going to be like that's the last conversation I have with the person. So I'm going to make them feel like Ledge belongs with me and that we're going to talk about and create good environments. And then ultimately, together, we can create make possible from the impossible. Okay. Thank you for your insights and your work. This is the important stuff that needs to be done. And I appreciate your integrative thought and the, the obvious work and learning that, that you have to do and that, that you're bringing to us on the show and kudos to Granite for, for building out and, and sponsoring this, this type of culture. I think we can all learn from it. So Thank you for your work. Thank you for your thoughts. And I really appreciate having you on. Appreciate for the opportunity. It's a great way to start the morning. I'll tell you what. So thank you. Absolutely. Anybody who's resonating wants to follow you, reach out to you and otherwise connect. What's the best way to do that? LinkedIn. LinkedIn. You can find me at Jorge A. Casada. It's comma MBA. Easy to find that way. And I try to stay on top of that. We're pretty active on it. But yeah, that's the way they can contact me. And follow the Construction DEI Talks podcast. Yes, on where you listen to your podcast. We're really excited about that. It started out as something where we wanted just to educate the industry, but we're having more and more people talk about it because we create a broader conversation around the work. And, you know, we can all learn things from different industries and, and the work around this type of stuff. It turns out it's human science, not just construction yes, science. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Have a blessed day. Thank you so much. Thank you. You as well. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. 
Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com.